This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the Barefoot Bandit is at it again. And speaking of at it again, Ian, a commercial airport group filed a brief in the Santa Monica dispute. Today is a historic day for medical certification reform. And Garmin is celebrating the launch of its new generation G1000 cockpit. All right, David, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. Okay, great, David. So we, we took a little bit of a break, um, had the holidays. Did you have a good holiday? I did. I did. I did some flying. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I uh, I, um, I I didn't. You did not? <laughs> I didn't. Well, well, I'll tell you what. I took a page out of your bookie, and I took a couple of uh, helicopter lessons. Did you really? It was awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, I look up to you for, for having a helicopter <laughs> certificate. That is crazy stuff. Yeah, it just means I'm crazy. That's all it means. Yeah, yeah it's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. Know? But I think that uh, learning a new skill like that as we turn over a leaf for a new year mm-hmm. really could help us as pilots in general. I agree. I liked the feeling of being really bad at flying i uh, you know <laughs> i thought that was a lot of fun to get into it and in fact i remember like um the instructor you know they show you how to hover right and it's like everyone describes it the exact same because it happens to everybody you know it's like the, it seems like they barely move their hands you know the, the instructor feet. yeah and just control chaos when and you it's right it. there and you yeah you take it and it's like you feel like you're gonna crash oh yeah and i just remember giggling at the whole thing about uh, i thought it was so cool oscillating wildly yeah but yeah. Uh, i was complimented by my instructor uh jp which I, I didn't think i did that good but he said i was a pretty good stick at that so yeah i'm gonna it, pursue it good it truly is everybody says this is so true it's like one day you'll just hover and you won't know why yeah and you'll you won't forget it'll yeah. just work Neat. um and unfortunately the the bad part of that is it's hard to instruct somebody i think in mm-hmm. it because it's like you know what do you say oh you'll get it you know but it's like it's it, all a feel thing yeah like really plane flying yeah. same kind of a deal yeah yeah i think uh, i think it's good for pilots to explore new horizons and that actually you know helicopter flying keeps your eyes outside of the cockpit yes not on uh, not on your the purple magenta line thing yep. you know and so that's what i love about it yeah yep. eyes out and just uh look at the horizon yep it's true it's real stick well stick and rudder if it St- were stick and rudder cyclic. it would be stick and rudder flying. cyclic and collective <laughs> that's you. right that's right um okay so we've got lots to talk about so let's jump into it uh you're going to bring us up to date on the latest santa monica oh my goodness ian when will they ever stop 
So in Santa Monica, a commercial airport group filed a what we called a friend of the court brief. Yep. And uh, AOPA has, has done the same kind of friend of the court thing a couple of years ago, in fact. But you know that airport we've mentioned brings in two hundred and seventy-five million bucks hmm. to the economy wow. and fifteen hundred local jobs. And really, the point is that they have taken uh, the funds from the FAA, and they just kind of need to live up to their agreement. Yeah. So this commercial airport group is called the Airports Council International North America. Oh, yeah. So they're sure. based in Washington. It's yep. a lobbying group. Yep. And they're best known for the uh, rating of uh, commercial airports. Mm. The one that, that's basically every uh, year they like come out. Like safety ratings? No, the business ratings. Oh, okay. They come out with the report that is always referred to where Atlanta's number one or Chicago's number one. Oh. And then they talk about JFK and Dallas and New York, that kind of thing. So, you know, they rate the busyness of the airports. Hmm. So they don't have much of a horse in the battle in Santa Monica, which is why it's very curious. It doesn't make sense for them to enter into this fray. So we wrote a little story about that uh, over the holidays. And the, the point is, is that, it's probably going to go nowhere. Their their deal is probably going to go nowhere. But they're a little bit... The, the suit, you mean? It's not a suit, though. It's a friend of the court brief. Oh, right. And um, so I was corrected. It's not a legal proceeding. It's kind of like saying if you're, you're an interested party and you want your... You want your views to be heard. Okay. It's a way for those views to be heard. And so the and judge weighs that as, as part of the ruling. They I throw guess. it into the pot, yeah. I guess. And the yeah. ACI folks, uh, they're basically concerned with Los Angeles International. That's about eight miles from Santa Monica. Yeah. Now, I've not been to either one. Have you? Uh, yeah, I have, actually. Yeah. So yep. when you look at Santa Monica, you see it's it's almost choked out by urban sprawl. Yeah, it's a, yeah. When you look at the satellite view, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And yeah. LAX is about eight miles to the south. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, if uh, if this commercial airport group really you know gets the ear of the uh, the of the government, the, you know, the, of Santa Monica's government and the Ninth Circuit Court over there in California, what they're actually doing is they're kind of they're kind of hitting a nail into their own foot because they're gonna have more traffic over at LAX because it's got to go somewhere from Santa Monica. And there's some, you know, pretty decent amount of traffic in Santa Monica. Oh, yeah. So can you imagine throwing 50 more operations into LAX in one day? Might be tough. Yeah. I but, mean, it's like putting, you know, 100 more cars on a jammed freeway. It's like there's no reform to go. It really makes no sense at all whatsoever. But uh, one other thing to note for our podcast listeners, and I do think they'll be able to listen to this podcast before this happens, is that one of the protest groups that's actually – Want that actually wants to close down the airport has uh, scheduled a protest for February the 4th. That's a Saturday. Hmm. And so we could advise our listeners to support the airport and go out there and see what the heck is going on on that 4th and, uh, and basically uh, do a little anti-protest. Hmm. Yeah. Santa Monica seems to be a, I mean, it's a key reliever airport in that LA basin area. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's well, it's a well used airport. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's a sleepy field or anything. Yeah. It's, it's funny because we were just talking about this that every airport faces a little bit of a different challenge. Um, and so here you're thinking, okay, is it that they just want the land for houses and high rises and everything else? Or are they concerned about safety or noise or what is it? And I guess the deal is that the residents, well, the residents have been told over years, right. apparently by city officials, that really the issue is safety and noise. And But, of course, <laughs> the real reason the city wants it is they want the land. They right? want I mean, the land. It's and good I'm, land. We're not going to get into it now because it's way too deep. But I did a little digging, Ian. And some of the city council members there, have, they have promised to 
turn a, a deaf ear towards the development. Yeah. But in fact, some political committees with some heavy money from real estate have actually supported at least three of the people on the city council. Yeah. Now, it's a small city council, and I'm not saying they have any ethical challenges or not, but it does lead one to question yeah. whether they are being, Absolutely. You know, taking it right down the middle or if there's another alternative. Yeah. Follow the money, right? Stay tuned to the ongoing yeah. saga at Santa Monica. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, speaking of following the money, um, next thing we want to talk about, we didn't tease this one, but uh, our number four story, uh, Diamond. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, big changes for Diamond. Now, this is, whew, Diamond, is their structure is very confusing. Um, we, in, I, I suppose by marketing, we know them as Diamond, but really there's two separate companies going on. Uh-huh. Um, there's European Diamond, Austria Diamond. That's right. Uh, the beginning of Diamond, where the stuff is developed. And then there's uh, Diamond in Canada. More of the manufacturing hub? Yeah, and certainly for North American customers, right. you know, their interaction. Closer to their customer base. Yeah, and there's been a sale. There's been some money that came in and exchanged hands, and there's a little bit of a deal going on with Frank Chen uh, from China. Yeah. And he is appointed chairman of Diamond Aircraft Industries Canada. So what does that mean for Diamond Aircraft owners or potential buyers? Yeah, so I think for this one, it's like you're going to want to go online and and read in detail um, how you're going to be impacted or if you're thinking about a Diamond, um, who you're going to work with in the future. Because essentially what they're doing is they're taking... So Diamond, you know, they've got the two-seat 20. They do. They've got the four-seat single-engine 40. 40. And the they've got the twin-engine 42. And also the twin 62. 62 now. And then some stuff in development. And, and what they're doing is parsing each of those models and sort of throwing some of them to Canada, some of them to Austria. Right. Um, exactly. And it gets really, uh, really pretty convoluted. But um, I, I think the bottom line is the majority of the sales uh, that they've had and, and where a lot of customers will continue to inter- interact with them is in Canada. In their own backyard, so to speak. Yeah. Canada and the U.S., North America, you would say. Yeah, right. And Peter Maurer, who's um, been running the show up there for ages, will continue right. to do so, so good. that's good. So we'll see. I, I'm, it was, what, a 60% share, I think? We'll have to go online. I'll have to dig yeah, deeper while I, we continue I think that's what it that. is. I think it was a 60% um, ownership stake. So... You know, they talk about the jet, which they'd shelled years ago. That's true. They did have the diamond jet. They that did. That was a key piece of equipment they had. It was a sexy-looking vehicle. I know. It's, it was the whole VLJ craze, and it just went... It's back in 2013. Yeah. Is that when they canceled it? They suspended it in 2013. Yeah. As, as Diamond Canada cut some staff. Yeah, well, some money. I think they stopped development on it even before that, so um, that what, one... What about yeah. the Dart 450 two-seat aerobatic trainer? I always think of Diamond as an engineering company. They've always got tons of little stuff going yeah. on. I mean, of course, Austro Engine. Yeah. They worked with Teeler. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, it's like they're they always... They were at the, at, the, at the forefront of that, yeah. that techno curve. Yeah, yeah, diesel and everything. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we see them have electric in the near future. They've done autonomous stuff, nice. um, you know, a land without pilot intervention, that sort of thing. So I always think of them as an engineering company. They have always got some something going on in Austria. That's, that's right. You know where they're developing yeah. like little uh, hot rod turboprops and stuff like that. Well, those airplanes are really cool. There are a lot of them out there now. You're right about the sixty percent share. That's on the. It's actually in our lead. Yeah. Right there. And um, I, I must tell you that back when I was doing my training, I really thought that 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 two seat. What's now called the 20, I think it used to be called the Katana. Yeah, that's right, when it first came out. Yeah, and had a different engine. But I always thought that was a pretty sexy aircraft. It's fun. You know, I, I have, um, I don't know, a little bit of time in the 40. Uh-huh. It's different. Uh, it's funny because, you know, a lot of airplanes you get in, it's like there's they're mostly similar, right? It's yeah. seat and yoke. And, uh-huh. um, Diamond's different. It's got the center stick, uh-huh. uh, which for some people is a problem. I found it comfortable enough 
lots of visibility because they and and they come so they come from like a glider heritage basically. Yeah, and so they got you a can long, tell that by the way they look. Yeah, and in sure. in a way the way they fly, it's yeah. like a you know a long thin wing, and so uh-huh. um, they're fun. Yeah, they're they're definitely fun, and they've uh, and they I'm telling you that I flew the 42, I think it was dash six maybe, which had those Austro engines in uh-huh. it. Uh huh. And uh, oh, just unbelievable! The How thing neat. is incredible. Um, you know, it's like all the advantages of diesel in terms of fuel burn and right. uh, run up and engine management and all that stuff. Right. Um, so I think they've got a lot going for them, and I, hopefully this investment helps them. You know, continue into the future. We'll so. keep an eye on it as they uh, as they move ahead. Yeah. All right. So um, speaking of keeping an eye on people <laughs> and, and odd investments, uh-huh. uh, so the Barefoot Bandit, Barefoot Bandit strikes again. I know you. We <laughs> we were kidding each other about this. Yeah, one. you said you followed this when um, when it happened back in the day. So, I did. Um, so bring us up to speed. What what? Who's the Barefoot Bandit? The Barefoot Bandit, uh, Colton Harris Moore, and he was a teenager when he when he stole airplanes, boats, cars, uh, pretty much you name it. Yeah. Back over a two year period, and and what we most remember him for is is landing an aircraft down in the Bahamas, a Cessna Corvallis, which at that time it wasn't a Cessna Corvallis. It was. I don't think so. I can't yeah. remember when the transition happened. And so basically, yeah. he stole a pretty nice plane. Yeah. And uh, landed it in the Bahamas, and uh, and then he he was busted. Yeah, so he did not get away with this. <laughs> yeah. Ran out of gas. I took it as far as he could. Right, the Seattle area. Right, that's he where he is was from. Where he is from yeah. the Seattle area. He's out now after okay. serving time. He served uh, a six. He received a six and a half year prison sentence. Okay, but he was released uh, this past September into a work release program over in Washington State. Okay, so what would you think you'd want to do if you're the Barefoot Bandit and you stole airplanes and you know, what would be the next step? I've I've just done my time. I've gotten out of the pokey. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, man, you know, what would the Barefoot Bandit do? Well, personally, I'd probably want to keep a low profile and just get a job and go about my business and never, but, you know, never you, talk about that stuff again. Right? That's why you're not the Barefoot Bandit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so um, so he went to the the high profile route. And oh, okay. Started a started a GoFundMe account. He wanted to raise one hundred twenty five thousand dollars for flight training, which oh. is admirable. I mean, we want to encourage people to take up you know yeah, aviation true. and flight training is a is a valiant thing to do. Yes. Uh, he wanted his his goals were to get a flight instructor certificate and also fly helicopters out there in in Seattle and Everett and Bremerton, Washington, which we were out yep. there this summer okay um but it, it just didn't go that far it didn't go over very well with his uh, probation officer oh man so um that <laughs> so he had raised like almost fifteen hundred dollars really? in a couple of days so yeah. there's so many uh, i think layers to this that just crack me up and i mean one is that the fact that the guy would just come out and say he wants to fly which i suppose you shouldn't be surprised about because he really seemed to have an admiration he's for got it. good experience yeah right it. that's right <laughs> he's the guy who uh you know, you put the airplane up for sale and it's like taken off once, you know, never landed or whatever it is. Um, he was good. I mean, he he took he he took multiple airplanes. It yeah. wasn't just one. Yeah. And he didn't kill himself. I mean, he obviously has some sort of uh, innate talent there. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, I think it was a bunch of uh, flight sim maybe is what I, yeah, if I, I recall I, back I in the day. I believe you're correct. Yeah. Um, so it's just too bad that he couldn't. It's like, you know, put your head down, go to the airport. Sweep floors, pump gas. Right. You know, a lot of people started that way. Yeah. And it's like, you know, show a little humility. That would be the way to do it. Show a little humility. Yeah. I mean, he was, I mean, we joke, but he really was uh, and is, he was a criminal. I mean, he had a gun. 
you know, and uh, uh, he had trans. They they one of the charges was interstate and foreign transportation of a stolen firearm. Yeah, it's very serious. Yeah, that's Plus, a big I deal. mean, he really did harm to the people whose air, airplanes he stole too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and then, then, then there's the insurance money that you know had to get involved with things like that. But um, but you know, the asking for one hundred twenty five thousand dollars on a GoFundMe is pretty oh bold. My gosh, it really is. So, so Jill Tallman wrote about that one day, I think on the 20th of December, and on the, by the 21st, yeah, shut down. <laughs> so, okay, um, what are you more surprised about? The fact that he would go on there and ask for 125 grand, or the fact that a few people gave him 1500 bucks? Oh, goodness. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm more shocked that people gave him money. Yeah. Do you yeah. think there was like, like, I might give 10 bucks just to see what happened. You know, like just out of curiosity. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's what they were. Maybe it was a bunch of, uh, as politicians say, it's like all small donations, right? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. But uh, now, so the deal was is that his probation officer rejected that idea because okay. I mean, he still owes mu- He still owes restitution to other oh, folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but one, one thing we chatted about just before we came on the air was that I didn't realize that he has sold the rights to his story to Sony. For $129,000. Yeah. Well, you know, because this is the thing. It's like he, he is an anti-hero. I mean, that's, right. you know, that's why he got so much publicity. He was a kid. He, you know, they called him the barefoot bandit because he would go into people's houses barefoot. Yeah. And for a long time, I think it was like it started. He would just, it was something to do. You know, he hung out and it was really petty theft kind of yeah. stuff. Um, Not to trivialize that because I know when somebody breaks into your house, it's a major issue. Oh, no, but, it's, it really is scary. Yeah, it is. And so, um, but I mean, I, I think a lot of people who maybe weren't connected to it found him to be sort of this anti-hero. And so kind from, of like a Batman. Kind yeah. Of and so from a, uh, you know, a movie perspective, it's like, it's a good movie. It is. You know, it's a good story. No doubt. Um, but it's like, I guess he owed that money to somebody else if he's not using it oh, for sure, flight training. Oh, sure, sure. And speaking of movies, we'll have to see if it ends up with a happy ending or a sad ending. We yeah. just don't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> the saga uh, continues for the yeah. barefoot bandit. I'd love to hear from somebody who donated and to hear uh, hear why. So, so if you're out there, email us. Let us know. Yeah, I'm curious. Okay. Okay. So to something a little more mainstream, the next G1000. We've got a next generation G1000 That's that right. just came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, maybe you were uh, busy opening presents or eating or something like that. And you missed it. But uh, the G1000 NXI, the next generation. That is a really interesting device, Ian. And I know you've flown behind the G1000s a few times. I have not, yeah. but I was, I was on this test flight in uh, the King Air where the uh, G1000 NXI was installed. Yeah. And it is quite an interesting and capable navigational unit. Yeah, the, um, the G1000 came out. I mean, it's just uh, it's incredible to think about this, but it came out in 04. In 04. Yeah. So that's over 12 years, 13 years ago. Yeah. So you're talking about a 13-year-old computer, basically. That's right. And that's what they were running and pat- they were patching it up, basically. Yeah. Yep. Um, F- 15, 15 major software upgrades. Yeah. So well, one thing I just did, re- I scribbled down real quick while we were chatting, was mm-hmm. that uh, now my iPhone 4 is already obsolete. And that yeah. thing's only like about five years old. I know. Right? You can't even get software for that. Yeah. So this came out in 2004, the G1000, which was, was a, it was an earth-shattering device when it came yeah. out. It still is. Yeah. And, the, and so they've done a lot um, over the years to obviously improve functionality, but also performance. And so this is like the next jump up from that. Um, there are, boy, I think a few dozen new features to it. 
Quite a few. Yep. They say that the install time will be like for um, upgrades for aftermarket will be uh-huh. faster. Like about a day even. Yeah. Out. Yep. And there's all kinds of cool stuff that, you know, I think it's like we're going to have to play with this more and get into it more. We've, uh, let's see, I think Tom Haynes flew with it in the King Air. He, he wrote down that it has uh, new displays with new processors and LED backlighting to start off with. Yeah. And that's basically just, just uh, the tip of the iceberg there. Yep. Lots of cool stuff like uh, things to alert you to runway incursions. Um, the, the, the HSI inset map, I saw that in action. Yeah. That was really cool. So on the main display, there's like a little like a little globe, if you will, at the bottom of the display. Yeah. And you can configure that for a variety of different things. It's an arc-shaped map you can put inside the HSI compass rows. And it's configurable. We can put in terrain or obstacles. You can put in NEXRAD. You can put in airborne radar. Cool. Or traffic, which is hugely important these yeah. days. Yeah, that is cool. Um, I know they're doing – so it's like lots of airports have um, and runways have instrument approaches, obviously, right. but many don't. And so the the system, I guess, now will build uh, essentially a visual approach. That's you know, cool. An instrument approach, right. you know, air quotes I'm doing right now, um, yeah. where it will give you a three degree glide path straight into the end of the runway. So, That's pretty neat. Yeah, really nice for night flying and Absolutely. other stuff like that. Um, so lots of uh, terrain clearance uh, upgrades and so just all kinds of stuff. Um, so that's on the uh, I guess on the King Air that we flew. Um, but also on the new Cirrus. That's right, because yeah. uh, the King Air was, I guess, the test bed. But then yeah. shortly thereafter, maybe not even a few days later, Cirrus announced their new air line of aircraft for 2017. When, among other things, now the Cirrus has upgraded the airplanes with you know, is also the G1000. Yep. So that's going to be around in a bunch of different airplanes. Yep. Um, that's, I guess, you know, bringing it down to the Cirrus level, it's a little bit more affordable than a King Air. Yeah. To a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, so it, it'll be... Um, I, I would assume, you know, the way that the G1000 certification works, it's it's pretty complicated. But they, um, the airframer uh, ha- does sort of a one level of certification. Garmin does another, and so they have to work together. And so it's going to take a little bit of time for these things to roll yeah. out to the entire f- fleet that's being offered now. But, you know, in a few years, I think you'll see any new airplane that comes out with the G1000 will have that. So Agreed. And, in yeah. fact, uh, Textron uh, announced, if I'm not mistaken, that it was going to be available in their aircraft too, which includes yep. Beach, of course, and Cessna, yep. as well as many others. Yep, yep, it's good. So, uh, okay, moving on. Uh, last thing we're going to talk about, really important, um, big day today. We saved the best for last. Yeah, this is um, this is happening today uh, as we record. This will be released in a couple days, obviously, but the third-class medical rule was f- issued today. The medical reforms will be effective May the 1st. Michael Huerta had a media briefing call today, and I will tell our podcast listeners I wish that they were here with us because the room was packed. Yeah, (laughs) that was fun. capacity. Yeah, that was fun. We were listening to it. It was a media conference call, and um, they they didn't give a ton of details. It was basically just to make the announcement um, and give folks a chance to ask questions, Um, but big headline is, yeah, May 1st, and I think the easiest way to describe this thing is they took the legislation and made it a rule. They did. Yeah. Everything we fought for for the past number of years that was uh, basically signed into law on uh, July 15th is now for real. But yep. it, now it starts on May the 1st, so we need to alert our podcast pilots that they need to wait until May 1st yeah. when the, all this stuff is implemented uh, before they could before they could really reap all the benefits. Yeah, so like for example, you know, it's the beginning of January now if your medical expires at the end of January, you got to go get one. You best starting, get a you know, February first, unfortunately. Right. Um, but if you expire later and uh, and you can comply, they're calling it basic med. 
Basic med. Um, and the way Administrator Huerta described it is he said it's not a lower class or a different class. It's an alternate method of compliance with the medical rules. The best thing to happen in general aviation in decades, said Mark Baker. Yeah, and I think he's right. I agree uh, with him totally. Yeah, yeah um, and, and we don't say that just because he's our boss. No, um, but think <laughs> of how many rusty pilots could get back on board and how many new pilots that might have been afraid of getting a medical. Yeah. Done ha- they don't have to be afraid of that now. Yeah, it's just one more hurdle that I think people aren't going to have to overcome, which is really cool. So before you know, some folks freak out and say, oh, it's going to be the Wild West, it's like you, you do have to hold a medical once. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and then there's a couple other little provisions, but I, you know, we went through some of this when we promoted the s- signing of the legislation last summer because right. FA just, they went yoink, they picked up the legislation, final rule, it follows it as far as we can tell so far in an initial reading, pretty much to a T. And we have people combing over that material as we speak. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so it was signed into law July 15th, and we rejoiced on that day, too. Yeah. And basically, the reforms uh, are supposed to improve safety and reduce the burdensome and ineffective bureaucracy that we've seen in the past few years. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So that's going to be helpful to a lot of pilots. There are some specifics around it, and I guess we should go over those. Yeah. A couple of bullet points. Yeah. So Uh, the um, aircraft specifications, up to six seats, 6,000 pounds, yep. no limitations on horsepower, number of engines, or landing gear type. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, there is a uh, limitation on speed. It's 250 knots. That's, so that's right. We should mention that. Yeah. So, um, and you can't, as a pilot, you can't operate for compensation or higher. Yep. There was some talk today, interestingly, in the call about flight instruction. And you're a flight instructor. This deals yeah. directly with you. Yep, yep. And uh, they said, while you can't do this with compensation or hire, it's like, well, flight instruction is flight instruction. It's a little bit different. Uh-huh. And they said, yeah, flight instructors could operate under so this. So you can operate under basic med rules. Yep. I think that's so cool. It is super cool. Yeah, I agree. Day or night, VFR, IFR for the rest of us pilots who are not instructors. Yep, it's big. Up to five passengers, which you mentioned earlier, that could be a Beechcraft. Yeah, yeah, Baron. And uh, aeromedical factors, you said every uh, every couple of years, every two years, pilots have to do a take a free online course, which we will host yep, at AOPA.org. Yep. And then visit a personal physician. Yeah. So as they say, there's no free lunch, right? Free uh, lunch. So, but I think this is going to... Close end, to a free lunch. Yeah. I think... This is really cool because I think it's going to keep pilots healthier because they're not going to avoid talking to their doctor about things. Totally agree with you. And or be scared to do so. That's right. And they get to really get in depth with their personal physician and learn more about health taking this course. And it's something that they will trust their personal physician. And uh, so, so they'll, like you said, they'll be more open to it. And then we were talking a little bit um, ago about the fact that what, what kind of a physician is qualified for this? Yeah, and that question came up on the call, which was I was surprised about because I never considered it. It's like I would think, oh, you just go to a general practitioner. Right. But um, the question did come up. It's like, you know, could you go to your cardiologist and, and have this you know, sort of fit for flight discussion and, right. and all those things. And they said, yeah, basically the only requirement is I, I think, you know, there's a term for it. I think it's a state licensed state licensed physician, physician basically, which would be a real doctor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to one who, so, you know, plays one on TV. Yeah, well, uh, there have been a few fly yeah. by night doctors. Yeah, there so, have. So you want to go to a reputable doctor and, and really we all should be honest with our physicians. Anyway, yeah. And this gives a little bit more of a, of an openness uh, for instance, I mean, I've had uh, I've twisted my ankle before, mm-hmm. and I've mentioned it during my flight medical. Yep. Hey, got a twisted ankle, but I'm fine now. Yep. Good to go. Yeah. So it's and and so I think before people say, eh, "What's the big deal?" It's like we're just going from AMEs to doctors, and I still got to go through all this. 
No, it's like you're already probably going for a physical, or at least you should be. Better be. Yeah. Um, and so all you have to do when you go for one of them every four years is say, hey, doc, can I, you know, I'm good to fly, right? And the doctor's like, yeah, you know, I think you're good. Or right. mm, maybe that you got this issue, then we should talk about it more, whatever. But the point is that it should be seamless to how you're already living your life and, and it, handling your and health. And it's not a special doctor that you're going to. Yeah. Um, now, now, you can continue to go to an FAA medical examiner you could. for the time being if you wanted to, if you're more comfortable you know, going that route. Yep. Or we should mention right. um, if you're doing second class or first class. Oh, if you're right. Flying for hire. Well, which is uh, for yeah. hire. Yeah, or if you're flying uh, personal jets and, you know, airplanes that don't come Or above 18,000 feet. Yeah, 18,000 is another one. Right. That's right. right. So, yeah, um, a few stipulations, but I think people will find once they get into the groove of this that it's really going to be no big deal. They even said today that, you know, there's this sort of checklist that uh, talks about the various, you know, health factors that you should consider. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're like, you could even scan it and keep it as a document in your phone or take a picture oh, of nice. it. Or you can That's even have right. that digitally. Someone asked, did, they ha- did you have to have the actual paper? Yeah. And in this day and age, everything, we've got everything digitally. Yeah. I mean, that's a key takeaway. Yeah, it, it yeah. really is. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, I think in the end, it's, it's not going to be burdensome at all. And, nah. and hopefully we'll draw a lot of folks back into it. I, I can see that writing on the wall. And listen, uh, our podcast listeners, ought to be pointed to our fit to fly online resources at aopa.org yeah we've got a ton of stuff we do pilot for resources day. for basic med will be found right there frequently asked questions mm-hmm. uh the conditions that require additional attention and of course our medications database and we're talking right now on the podcast during the winter time you know a lot of people have sniffles and colds and stuff so don't forget yeah. to take a look at that online resource for that yep um, and uh, several other resources for basic med. So we're real excited about that. We were people were so excited. They uh, did we mention this already? They shut down our uh, yeah. our web <laughs> server. Website. Yeah, uh, so we were so having trouble getting on it. Reading in, which yeah. is a great a great uh, problem to have if you yeah have a problem. It really was. I was looking at Facebook today. It's like people are genuinely excited about this. Very. Um, I think it's going to be a big deal. You'll hear us talk about this all year and into the future. Obviously, as we help folks uh, get through the process, but. At the fly-ins, Oshkosh, Sun and Fun. There's been lines out the door for yeah. frequently asked questions to our medical staff. Yep. And, of course, we do have a, a complete PIC staff ready to answer any questions, any and all questions. And I think they're going to beef up some of those hours, really, for people to come and ask more questions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we'll uh, we'll be here if you need us. Um, any, uh, any question you have or concern or getting through the process or whatever, we're even... You know, uh, there. Uh, basically, we want to make sure that the process works great for everybody, and so we're even uh, developing some stuff for doctors uh, to help them through it in case they have questions. And so, yeah. Now, I bet the online course is going to be super, super easy and a lot of fun, like the ASI courses we talked about a little, a little, yeah, a few minutes ago. Yeah. And there, to me, it's just a fun thing to do, and it's great to uh, participate in that. And I believe you get some good coaching and some good background too. Don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's education. I mean, you right know, we're always learning, right, as pilots. So. Yeah, exactly. That's what John and Martha King said. Yeah, so it's cool. I, I'm excited. I think it's going to be great. Um, it'll be really neat to see what happens this summer after it becomes effective. So, Looking forward to that. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So our guest this week, Adrian. Tell us a little bit about Adrian. You know him more than I do. I've, I've met him a few times at the airport. Yeah. Interesting guy. He is a very interesting guy. Yeah, he, he really is. Um He's Adrian's done a little bit of everything, I yeah. would say. Um, he's one of those guys. He's actually, he's one of those guys where you talk to, maybe you've just met him, you're having dinner, right? Uh-huh. And you come away and you're like, no way. It's like, that guy was lying. There's no way that guy <laughs> has done what he said he's done because it's such a variety of experience uh-huh. that you're like, it's like five lifetimes that he's had already he and he's still packs flying. it in. Yeah. So, 
Uh, he's done all kinds of amazing stuff. He um, one of his favorite stories is about flying Neil Armstrong. Oh, neat. Um, he Adrian flew for the FAA for a little while uh-huh. um, out of National uh, here in DC, and uh, one time his passenger was Neil Armstrong, and he's done some corporate flying. He was in the Army. Um, these days he's flying for JetBlue. That's his full time gig. That's nice. But the reason we're talking to him today because um, he's a big GA guy. He is. He talked to us at the fly-ins. He talked yeah. to a lot of AOPA members at our regional fly-ins. Yeah, he's got this beautiful bonanza. He's an A and P. Well, uh-huh. we should mention it's something else. An accomplished A and P. Yeah, in fact, he was uh, maintenance tech of the year last year. Nice. Done a lot of cool seminars and uh, and so he had this sort of bucket list item, this uh-huh. goal, and it was he wanted to fly around the world. My goodness. And, you know, it's funny because at the beginning I thought, well, you've probably already done that, right? It's like, I mean, you've flown corporate. It's like you fly for the airlines. Yeah. Why are you going to fly around the world? But he, he wanted to do it in his bonanza. Oh. And so he spent years getting this thing ready. Prepping it. Prepping it for this trip. Yeah. Uh, and he did it. He did it last year. Flew around the world. And he's got some great stories to tell about it. And so he came in and talked to Tom Haynes, who um, they actually were together on a little bit of that journey. Okay. Um, and Adrian uh, and Tom have been friends for a while. And so... I think every, I don't know, do you dream about doing something like that? Oh, of around course. The I would love to do that. And it just seems that the logistics alone would be daunting. I know. Forget the fact about, you know, personal logistics. Yeah. And then, and then add that, add into that the technical limitations of the aircraft. Yeah. Just a lot of moving parts. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I think I, <laughs> when I was younger, and I didn't have responsibilities, I thought, man, it'd be awesome to fly like a single engine over to Europe, you know, and now I think, I don't know, maybe two, maybe maybe a twin engine, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. a turboprop up yeah, higher with a parachute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, kids and everything. I, I know, but it's like he did it. He uh, did it. He did it in a yeah. bonanza, single engine bonanza. Yeah, tricked out though. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yep. it's a beautiful aircraft. It is. And so, um, well, let's uh, hear from Adrian and hear how the trip went. So let's find out a little bit about how long it took and what he found along the way. Okay, well, hey, thanks, Dave uh, and, and Ian, for that introduction. It's uh, it's great to be here, and joining me is uh, Adrian Eichhorn, and uh, welcome, Adrian. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. Yeah, Adrian, uh, among other things, being an A&P IA mechanic and uh, also an airline pilot and a Bonanza owner and longtime Bonanza aficionado and also the guy who maintains my Bonanza. Thank you very much. You bet. Uh, but uh, also somebody who's had a really interesting trip this past year, uh, flying his uh, Bonanza around the world. And so I want to go way back to the beginning, Adrian. Um, first time I heard you say, you know, I think I'm going to fly my airplane around the world. I went, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> this guy's crazy. It's a pipe dream, never happened, that sort of thing. And then pretty soon it became evident in our conversations that you were serious about this. What was it that caused you here, you know, in your, uh, at this point in your life to make a decision you're going to do something as significant as fly a single-engine piston airplane around the world? You know, Tom, looking back, I don't think it was any one particular event or thought. Um, I was aspired to do this years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, by Wayne Collins, Frank Hale, and a number of other Bonanza guys that had flown around the world back before GPS and back when countries were more friendly towards the U.S. And I figured if they've done it, now with modern navigation and, and some... Uh, increased capability in the bonanza, I could do it too. And I think, uh, I think it boils down to the fact that I wanted to push myself 
and do something that exceeded the limits of anything that I had done before in a GA airplane in terms of uh, fatigue, risk management, uh, getting the airplane ready to go and prepared so that it w if I were to break down in some country where there were limited resources, it wouldn't be a, a major event to get it out of there. So yeah. I don't know that there was any one particular reason other than to just challenge myself as an aviator to to kind of push the limits and uh, see if I'd be able to do it. Mm -hmm. So guys have done this before, but mm -hmm. frequently for a cause. Well, mm -hmm. Why'd you do it? No particular reason, just because we can. You know, we all know that we share a freedom here in the United States that's greater than any other country in the world, at least the countries that I've been to. And we have to protect that freedom, and we have to promote the fact that you can still do this if you're willing to co take a commitment with a lot of planning. And yes, it's expensive, but, you know, we go through life, we all have choices. And if you're willing to make a commitment, sacrifice, uh, plan it, you can do it. And, yeah. and I did it in a 54-year-old airplane. This wasn't a brand-new Bonanza or turbine aircraft that r just rolled off a production line. It's, a, it's an airplane that many of us own. Right. So, so where do you start with the planning? You know, How do you look, decide even you know, which direction to go? You know, that's one of the hard parts, getting started. And, and I started by talking with people that had done it before um, and learning from their experiences Wayne Collins back in the day was, was a tremendous uh, uh, resource for me, most recently Bill Harrelson. And uh, by talking with former Earth Rounders and now with the Internet, it's, it's really neat to just go in and have the ability to, to just reach out and easily touch and get information from other people that have done it. And there's a website, Earth Rounders. I think it's just earthrounders.com, which was a good source as well. So by, by talking with other people, and uh, that's, I think, what started it. Yeah. So you also spent a lot of time getting the airplane ready. You, you were already kind of in a, a ref restoration mode with your airplane, I think, when, when the idea came to you about flying it around the world. And so that just led to adding some more stuff to it while you already had the airplane apart, as I recall. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I looked back uh, about four or five years ago when Dave Hirschman and I and, uh, and a number of other guys, and we took three Bonanzas and we went up to through northern Canada, crossed over, flew over the icebergs of Greenland and came back. And, and fortunately, we had great weather and no maintenance issues. And I think... Uh, that really inspired me that I got back that there's another long-distance trip in my future. So I, actually, it was uh, shortly after that time that I started making modifications to the airplane. And I have the benefit of being an A&P and an IA. So uh, I did quite a bit of restoration and a lot of modifications to the airplane that didn't need it to be done just for this trip. But I also knew that I need to make this airplane in as perfect condition as I have the ability to do so, um, and add redundant systems, and a st add a standby alternator, add uh, a new engine monitor, um, the spider tracks for location. So at, make a number of modifications for safety reasons, as well. Because you know, going around the world, we all know there's a lot of water, and it includes crossing a number of oceans. And when you're out there. My longest leg was from Honolulu back to Oakland, which was just under 17 hours. I was fortunate to have a high-pressure system, so great weather, but it meant a headwind. Um, so when you're out there, you want everything in that airplane to be in as perfect shape as it can be. Mm -hmm. so. And the most obvious 
physical change to the airplane, visible change to the airplane, of course, were those big tip tanks, affectionately referred to as... Dolly Parton's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll let your imagination, the, the, the listener's imagination, run away with that one about why they're called Dolly Parton's. But man, they are big jugs out there on the end of the wings, I got to say. They are, and they, they add for great stability um, with respect to roll as long as you're balancing fuel properly. And my technique was to every 30 minutes balance between to keep the airplane uh, within limits. But uh, yeah, I think about 30 years ago, uh, Frank Kale, who had the initial... Uh, desire with Wayne Collins and a couple other guys down in uh, Texas to do th- some earth rounding uh, trips that Frank found these old 230 gallon military drop tanks. I believe he found 10 of them uh, or maybe 20 of them. He, he, uh, he designed them. Frank was a mechanical engineer. Uh, he designed a 100 gallon tank out of that. They were welded and manufactured up in, in Wisconsin. So there's only a limited uh, number of those sets. So he literally cut down drop tank, military drop tanks, into a size that was appropriate for a GA airplane at, at 100 gallons a size. Correct. He figured having 100, uh, 200 gallons total in addition to the 80 that was in the wings of the Bonanza would be enough to do what he needed to do. So they went through a number of. Uh, I think uh, iterations. The first ones they did were shorter, and they lost a lot of airspeed. Then they made them more pointy on the on the tail end, and and perfected them. And there's quite a bit to it with baffles on the inside and the pickup point, and having a uh, fuel gauge that would work from 100 gallons down to zero. So they 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 did all the research, the manufacturing, and uh, boy, I credit those guys for being the pioneers. And initially, they went around the world in experimental category until. At one point in time, they were able to get a, a field approval, which led to other field approvals. So they were put on the aircraft under a major alteration, um, which made the airplane legal. Mm-hmm. So you could have had as much as 280 gallons on, on board the airplane, or actually maybe a little more than that, because we suspect exactly. that the tip tanks are actually maybe even a, a few gallons more than 100 each, mm-hmm. right? And how much did you have on there at any one time? What was the most you used? I believe I was right around 240 gallons, and uh, and fortunately, uh, when I landed in Oakland, I think I had 65 gallons remaining, and I could have flown easily for another five hours. So <laughs> the aircraft running Lena Peak with my IO-470, and I can get the fuel burn, say, at nine, eleven thousand feet down, right around 10 gallons per hour. Um, you have a 26-hour range, and with any type of a tailwind, you're going to be pushing in excess of 3,500 nautical miles nonstop. My longest leg was just around 2,300 nautical miles. So the airplane has a capability that I, I haven't used yet. Uh, so, so that seems like it leaves the door open for future opportunities. It does, and maybe even adding a, a cabin tank to extend the range a little bit farther wow. to enable going around the world over the poles, which is a, a thought that I've had inspired by Bill Harrelson. Because I don't believe anybody has done this trip in the same airplane. I, there's been a number of Earth rounders that have gone around parallel with the equator, and a handful of guys have gone over the poles, but I don't believe anybody has done both directions in a same production-built airplane. Oh, that would be certainly certainly an interesting challenge. So let's talk about your route. Um, you decided to go ultimately eastbound, mm-hmm. and there are some advantages to that, and there are some disadvantages to that. Let's talk about that. The major disadvantage is you're running away from the sun, and your days get uh, can shorter much quicker. Um, 
once I got to Egypt, from Egypt all the way back to the States, you're talking pretty uh, short days um, and long legs. So the disadvantage is you're going to have to, on any one of those long legs, be flying the last two to four hours or more at night, which um, a lot of people are not comfortable with flying night in general, let alone at night over the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The disadvantage of going eastbound is obviously uh, you're running away from the sun. And for me, the winds, I had a tailwind all the way down to uh, Sri Lanka. Um, From Sri Lanka back to the United States, it was a headwind most of the way. So I think it's a wash depending on what time of year. I don't think there's a real strong advantage to going either direction when you're considering winds for, for, for for performance reasons. Mm-hmm. So, so your route, you, you took off from uh, your home base in Manassas, Virginia, and first stop was Maine, right? Yep, up to Bangor, Maine, and from Bangor, Maine, I made the decision to go up to uh, St. John's, where that was kind of a, a critical um, point. Uh, depending on weather, initially I had planned to go over the southern tip of Greenland to Iceland, which would have meant about a 10-hour flight, And that would allow for a divert airport at the southern tip of Greenland at about the five-hour point, which means you're only about two and a half hours away from land on any given leg. Um, But I used Jeppesen Flightstar for planning, and one of the features on that program is you can click on turbulence, and it'll show you turbulence, temperatures, winds aloft. Very capable program. And the night before the crossing, I looked that there was a very severe band of uh, turbulence pretty much from the ground all the way up into the flight levels that paralleled uh, the coast of Canada, which I would have to fly through. And I thought, no, I'm not going to fly through bad turbulence with these Dolly Parton tip tanks. And uh, the freezing level wasn't so much the issue or the visibility. So I elected to go down to the Azores and from the Azores up to France. And the disadvantage of that route is, you know, I'm just getting started out a little bit nervous about the trip, but that meant the first long leg of almost 10 hours would be down to the uh, Azores out over the ocean. The good news was I was going to be going towards warmer temperatures. Um, And then from the Azores, I had just an amazing tailwind all the way up to France. So, uh, you know, I, I was flexible with planning, and fortunately those are countries where you don't have to get overflight permits and landing permits in advance. So that allows a lot of flexibility with getting to Europe, which isn't the case going through the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about um, your experience and sort of fellowship of aviators around the world, and you, you're well known for helping other aircraft owners and pilots with you know, parts and advice and, and, th- and that sort of thing. You experienced that, though, on this, on this trip around the world, and certainly on the first leg where you had a bit of a maintenance problem you were trying to troubleshoot. I did. I had a maintenance problem, which, uh, boy, I, I've given presentations on this trip uh, titled I Could Never Be So Lucky Again. And on my very first leg, uh, flying from Manassas up to Bangor, I had the new uh, G4 engine monitor in there and had just made another test on my HF. It was a beautiful, severe, clear day. So... I got up to altitude, and I thought, all right, it's time to run Lena Peak and get some numbers um, and and just check how well this engine is going to run. And I noticed on my number two cylinder that things just weren't right. So short version of this story is uh, when I got up to Bangor, Maine, um, pulled the airplane in the hangar at Maine Arrow, and uh, we found, or not we, and, and I've rebuilt this engine myself. I've inspected it until I'm blue in the face. Um, the mechanic, Ben, that I worked with up there, 
after about two hours of just scratching our head, we found uh, uh, one of the injector lines so the number two cylinders had a crack in it. Uh, or, or actually the B-nut that holds the injector line to the injector had a crack in it. And had we not, or had he not found that, and that line would have worked itself loose from the injector out over the ocean, I would have been at reduced power and spraying fuel right above the muffler on the left-hand side of the engine. So it could have been, it could have been a catastrophic event. Mm -hmm. So that was one of a number. Uh, guys along the way, as you know, because we, we did a portion of this trip together in Egypt that allow us to buy um, Avgas through the, making a donation to the Aero Club in Thessaloniki, the EAA chapter in Malaysia meeting me with open arms and helping me avoid the handling charges of the FBO there. And then uh, in Hawaii, uh, getting help uh, with getting the autopilot fixed. So, yeah, that was some amazing events. And, of course, then Ian um, Sagan and Ed Hicks coming over from the U.K. at no cost to us and overflying the shores of Normandy and taking pictures of the Bonanza over the American cemeteries. That really, those will be the lasting memories of the yeah. trip. It won't be the high fuel costs or the ridiculous landing fees or parking fees. Those are the memories that will stick with me that really made this trip enjoyable. Yeah. So that's the enjoyable part. But there had to have been moments on the trip when you, you must have thought, I know I would have, uh, wow, what, what am I doing? And, and, and I would think that one of them is leaving St. John's, and you're, now you're headed for this little speck of land called the Azores in the in the Atlantic Ocean that is you know, hours and hours and hours from any other land and certainly what nine hours away from you what what was that like what was going through your head as you're you're heading out on that first overwater leg yeah I was pretty nervous uh or nervous is probably not the right word just excited um in the anticipation of it and and a couple of things on that leg is I took off out of St. John's, Newfoundland, and there was a layer of overcast that I punched through. So for about six hours, I never saw the ocean. So I thought, well, I'm just flying over Kansas. There's just a layer below me. And I wasn't really <laughs> thinking about what the sea state may be or how cold the water is or the fact that may be my home for a while if something goes wrong. And then a couple hours into the flight, uh, I got a call because I was monitoring 1 to 1.5 and 1 to 3, 4, 5 on my number one and number two comms on VHF while I was talking on HF. And uh, an aircraft ahead of me that didn't have HF uh, had called me because he knew that I was flying to the Azores. Um, and I was making position reports for him, and that was kind of neat. So here's a little 54-year-old Bonanza making position reports for another aircraft. And uh, he was my pigeon. He was telling me about the weather that I would be encounter plus uh, my good friend John Whitehead, who was watching the flight on his computer at home and was texting me via spider tracks weather reports. Um, so I wasn't alone on that trip. And that's one of the things that really I like to share with other people if the, anybody's thinking about doing this trip is even though I did most of the trip solo, I was never alone on any given leg because I had a ground support crew back here, which was invaluable. Yeah, I can only so, imagine. Yeah, the anticipation of that. And, uh, of course, we've flown together. I, I kind of fly at times like a caveman. Uh, <laughs> I do one waypoint at a time. And I know when I coasted out and got my oceanic clearance, I could not get the uh, lat longs to load into 530. So I was kind of winging it with heading and anticipating times because you have a three-minute window for 
position reports out over the ocean. And uh, so there was quite a bit of dialogue and work that was going on there that, that stimulated me so I could give as accurate of a position report and projected estimated time to my next waypoint along the way. So I was quite busy along that leg. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, got to be. So then uh, after a the Azores, you, you go to France um, and to Normandy. And that was an interesting arrival, wasn't it? It sure was, Tom. Um, I welcome to Europe. Yeah, welcome to Europe. And, uh, yeah, I'd taken off out of the Azores about an hour later than I had planned because it's just the fueling and the flight plan and the, the typical things that you encounter when you're not really proficient at flying outside the United States. But fortunately, I had a very strong tailwind off the coast of Spain and all the way in. And, and I remember I needed to land by 8 because the airport was going to close. And I thought, boy, if I land after 8, it could be very expensive to keep the uh, air traffic control people in the tower, etc. So uh, I shot an ILS with a circle to land. It was raining pretty hard. And it was about 5 minutes to 8, and I'm on the ramp by 8 o'clock. And I'm thinking, my God, I just crossed the North Atlantic. Um, I'm here. I did it. And the FBO, all the lights were on. And because it was raining, I thought, well, I'll get everything in my airplane organized and put away and throw the cover on and get into the FBO. And by the time I did that, the FBO was closed and they had gone home. <laughs> so so you're trapped. welcome to France. Trapped. You're, you're trapped on the air side of the airport and the fences are all secured. And yep. so you can't, nobody there and you yep. can't get to the land side. And I remember calling the tower because I could still see people up there. I'd say 3-3 Golf is on the ramp uh, ground and nobody answering. So, uh, yeah, I think I know now why we had to go over and liberate France. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks, but uh, mm -hmm. that was not the welcome that I expected. So no customs, no immigration, no real uh, welcome at that point. Yeah. So, so you, you find your way eventually through an unsecured uh, gate. Soaking wet. And uh, in the in the driving rain, and ultimately get to the hotel. Yep. But then the fun really starts, right? Absolutely. Then uh, that's when you came over, and we got to tour the American Cemetery in Normandy and share some friendship, and then uh, and then fly on a beautiful day over the mustard fields down to Frederikshavn, Germany. I remember we were concerned about a little bit of ice because uh -huh. it was still early in the year, but into Frederikshavn for Arrow which was a really uh, neat experience. Yeah, it's, seeing a, it's a big sort of their answer to Oshkosh, but a very civilized version of Oshkosh. I guess say. It's all indoors, beautiful facilities. Beautiful facilities, and just neat seeing the European aspect of what we've experienced over here. And then, of course, we left early because of the pending weather over the Alps. Amazing right. flight. Yep, having our uh, espresso coffee beans and down into <laughs> Thessaloniki. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a... Incredible trip being, you know, flying over parts of Germany and Switzerland and then down down through the, some of the Balkan states, the Adriatic. Um, really, really incredible views of the Alps, uh, snow-capped mountains. It was, it, was, it was really spectacular. Yeah, it meant a lot to me because my parents were German. I grew up in Germany, and we flew over Garmisch, where I learned to, to ski when I was three years old as a little tot. So I was pretty, pretty neat. And, of course, we had a beautiful day. And the yeah. controllers were super friendly and uh and then going down over bosnia in in serbia and the countries that when i retired from the military were at war and now here we are 15 years later flying through their airspace over those mountains and i can if i recall we had a great tailwind all the yeah, way down there too and clear and smooth that was a beautiful flight 
It was. So we landed at Thessaloniki and were hosted there by an, uh, an aero club in, in Greece and uh, spent a couple of days there and, and then decided we wanted to go explore a different part of Greece. And so we uh, sort of uh, decided one of the Greek isles would be next and so ended up uh, headed down to Santorini. That was a good flight too. Oh, it sure was. And again, we had perfect weather. Um, hardly any wind smooth, just absolutely perfect flight down. And that was, uh, that was a place I want to go back to. Yeah. Probably in a in an Airbus or in a Boeing. <laughs> it's cheaper. Right. So we spent a, an overnight there, and then it was off to, uh, certainly for me, I think the, the most interesting uh, part of the trip, uh, inter- interesting being a, a, a word that can be interpreted numerous ways, uh, was the flight to Egypt. Yeah. That across the Med. Across the Med, and of course, we were met by the sandstorm and the Egyptians and going into Massa, uh, yeah, Masa Mertra, I believe we pronounce it, the first airport or airport of entry. And, uh, yeah, interesting to say the least. Yeah. And then from there over to 6th October, and we met uh, our host, uh, Eddie. Yep, Eddie Gold. Eddie Gold uh, from uh, General Aviation Support Egypt. And Eddie, was his services were priceless. Um, has a real passion for helping uh, people in general aviation aircraft around the world. And he was our host. And of course, we got to ride camels and see Egypt and have some friendship there. And uh, that was probably the most eye-opening part of the entire trip because we found out from talking with Eddie that uh, Cairo's about 20 million people. We're at the GA airport right outside Cairo. And we guessed there were about five licensed GA pilots in the whole country and we believe only one, uh, the doctor we met and had dinner with, is the only aircraft owner that's actively flying. Yeah. And then, of course, as we know, there's no VFR flight or no flight period below 8,000 feet. Yeah. So when we think about flying in this country and all the freedoms we have, I mean, here at Frederick, we can take off and we can't go south because of the SFRA, but we can take off to the, to the west, the north, and even parts of, to, to the northeast. And just just go. We don't really have to talk to anybody. We've yep. got the tower here now. But other than that, I mean, you, nobody needs to know where you're going. And you can fly at any altitude you want pretty much. Uh, and, and it's so restrictive in, in Egypt. And that's just one example of a bunch of countries in that part of the world of what it's, how difficult it is to fly there. But think about what, what it is that you just said is that we had dinner with, as near as we could tell, the only active aircraft owner in all of Egypt. I know. I know. It's it's. It's amazing, and what what people that think we need uh, individuals or organizations that think we need user fees and all this, you have to remember that our GA airports that are in this country is where dreams were started for people that got into aviation. Mm -hmm. You know, we went to the moon first. It wasn't the Egyptians, and we have the greatest pilots uh, in in the world. Um, and a lot of that has, a lot of those dreams, a lot of those desires to get into aviation started by a trip out to the local airport. Right. So, yeah, we're extremely fortunate. Yeah. So um, that leads to a discussion. You mentioned user fees, uh, which are, thank goodness, mostly foreign here. We got ramp, we got some ramp fees, landing fees, that sort of thing, but certainly air traffic fees and fees to get weather services and all that sort of thing don't exist here. And we've got, well, fuel costs more than we think it should. It is, uh, um, not not outrageous and it's, it's it can be manageable but you didn't experience that at all when you were flying most of these legs particularly once you got outside of europe talked about talk about what the fees were like and what the fuel prices were like 
the fuel prices were were pretty high um, in Dubai uh, because there is no GA there, and you have to buy fuel in barrels, for example, like many of the other places. I think the most expensive uh, fuel price I paid was there. It was a little over $26 a gallon. Um, wow, 26 bucks And a just gallon. the availability of fuel is is very limited in most other parts of the, the world. And, and I go back to the initial planning for my route. And my route was basically decided on avgas availability that i went to major airports which may have had higher landing fees and handling fees than other airports but i wanted to assure the availability of avgas Um, and i didn't have to have avgas shipped anywhere along the route Uh, i was lucky after a change of plans coming out of uh, Kuala Lumpur and ended up going a different route home that, that my friend John Whitehead had found some barrels of gas in Majuro, and that enabled me to go up through uh, the Philippines and Guam to Majuro and to Hawaii. So that was luck, and that was the, the result of an extensive effort on my ground support crew, and specifically John Whitehead, doing a search and making numerous calls to find Avgas so I could go that route. Yeah. But so what about weather? I mean, you, you had pretty decent weather most of the trip, but, but one in particular was that uh, that, that flight uh, uh, over the Indian Ocean. Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, with respect to weather, uh, we somewhat take it for granted here because we have uh, air traffic control will provide us weather advisories when, when they have the time to do so. And we have ForeFlight, and we have XM, and we have ADSB weather, where you get outside the boundaries of the United States all the way around the rest of the world. I had nothing other than what I had on my storm scope. And uh, my route from Ashwan back up to Luxor across Saudi Arabia into Dubai uh, put me over Saudi Arabia in the middle of the afternoon in some pretty severe thunderstorms. That was, that was a little intense. And then as well going down to Sri Lanka over the southern tip of India and, and down into Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia where I experienced the intertropical convergence zone. And uh, needless to say, I was scared more than once on that route. Um, the storm scope was the only really weather that I had in the airplane, and it was getting so cluttered I almost couldn't just keep up with clearing it. Um, so that was a little bit intense, but uh, no weather services whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Earlier you mentioned the... The longest leg being from Hawaii to Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you prepare for that, and what was your mind? What were you thinking? You know, the great thing about the eastbound route is, as I progressed eastward, my legs progressively got longer. You know, nine hours uh, was the longest leg across the Atlantic, and then from Dubai down to uh, Sri Lanka, I think was about twelve or so. So the legs got progressively longer, and Interestingly enough, I think the most enjoyable part of the whole trip was once I took off, I'm in my little space in the airplane and I'm out flying over the ocean. I'm just thinking about what I'm doing and you're busy. You know, I had thought my biggest challenge was going to be staying awake on these on these long legs and that was never a problem. <laughs> and I think it boils down to fear when you're yeah. in a single engine airplane and there were a couple times I put my head back thinking, I'll just close my eyes for a few minutes and maybe rest. But the minute I'd close my eyes, I'd open them back up and look at my engine monitor, look at the HF, make sure that I hadn't bumped 
the knob and dialed in a different frequency. And, and my technique flying across the ocean was I would switch when I was running off the tip tanks every 30 minutes, mm -hmm. which I planned at 15 minutes past the hour and 45 minutes past the hour. So that gave me something to do to monitor the fuel flows, the quantity used, um, every 30 minutes. And then through the Pacific, I had to make ops normal reports on the top and the bottom of the hour and position reports. So you're actually quite busy out there. And it boils down to having to do something, have to be, having to be mentally engaged in navigation and talking with San Francisco radio and doing something in the airplane every 15 minutes. So those ocean legs were long, but they, they definitely were challenging mm -hmm. to know exactly where you were in the event of a catastrophic engine failure and a potential ditching. And, and I was comfortable with all of that. I have absolutely no problem with flying over water. But on those legs from Manila to Guam, Guam to Majuro, Majuro to Honolulu and back, they all included about four hours of flying at night. And I thought, boy, ditching at night would not be an event I'd ever want to experience. Yeah. You know, you prepare for it, but then when you really think about it, when you're out there and on those legs, they, uh, I think from Majuro to Honolulu and Honolulu back, I was flying for 11 hours. I look over my left shoulder. The sun is setting, a beautiful sunrise, and I'm thinking, man, I still have four more hours to fly. Yeah. And I thought, well, I better organize everything in this airplane because, you know, our cockpits are relatively poorly lighted. That's the bottom line. And, and I thought, if I do have to ditch, chances are where the, stuff, where the raft is now, where the ELTs are, where the throw bags are, is not going to be where it's going to be once I get out of, try and get out of the airplane. So that's a little daunting when you think about that. But um, those were great legs. Those, yeah. were, those were really a lot enjoyable. Yeah. So you went feet dry in the U.S. Uh, in Oakland. Why Oakland? You know, I... I Basically, was looking at anywhere from Oakland down to San Diego, and it was uh, based on the winds. Yeah. Um, for the particular day that I left, I looked at going to Long Beach, um, which is a base for us at JetBlue, and, and JetBlue had kind of asked that I come there to maybe have a little celebration. But I looked, and I could save about an hour and a half of flying, and that meant an hour and a half less at night. So mm -hmm. I went up to Oakland, which is, I think, Oakland, San Francisco is the closest to Hawaii. And, and Oakland is where I, I basically learned to fly. So that was really neat going back in there. Yeah, so, so yep. returning home sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. That was really a, an enjoyable coming across the Golden Gate Bridge and thinking, I used to do this in my Cessna 150. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now, now you're back in the United States, and, of course, then coming across the U.S., uh, you've made that, that trip many, many times, of course, in jet, for JetBlue, but also... Uh, in general aviation airplanes, uh, what was it like? Uh, what did it feel like getting back into uh, an air traffic control system that felt so comfortable? Ah, it's it's amazing. You know, I I look at one of the most memorable flights of the whole trip, and that was taken off out of Centennial after I had met with the folks at Jeppesen, flying to downtown Kansas City to meet with a good uh, Baron pilot, Pete Rouse, who's a longtime friend of mine. And just taken off out of Denver with a tailwind on a severe, clear, perfectly smooth day, flying across the f uh, farmlands, say 3,000 foot above the ground, and, and just realizing, looking down and seeing all these GA airports and knowing that if I had to land, I would probably encounter somebody that would help me. And I, I would, it would no sec security concerns. Um, 
and just looking at the freedom and realizing how great it was that there were people, whether the air traffic control or on the ground, that would be helping me enjoy my passion of aviation. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was yeah. really good to be back. Yeah, I'll bet. So you may have inspired others to do something like this. What kind of advice can you give them for people who might be thinking about it? Uh, I hope I, first of all, I hope I've inspired others because uh, it, it's a remarkable um, uh, journey. And, and it, I think it's something to be proud of talking with other earth rounders. We now have a, a little bit of a bond that's maybe stronger than with some other people because you, you share your experiences, but uh, start planning well in advance um, and have a good ground support crew. Have some folks at home. I had Dave Monty in case I had a maintenance issue who's out of Minden, Nevada. Bill Compton, who's a uh, but longtime Bonanza pilot and a doctor up out of Alaska. And those guys were looking out for me the whole entire way. And, and one thing I will say is pretty much on... Most of the trip and on all the long legs, I would consult with John and with Bill before any given leg and make a determination whether or not I should fly based on my mental state, the weather, the fuel burn and such. So don't try and do this alone. It's Mm -hmm. one thing to fly it alone, but it's another thing to plan it and execute it alone. So So it's a lot to consider, but it seems like the most important thing is simply the decision to do it. Once you've made the decision to do it, then the rest of it is all just logistics and sort of mechanical of of getting all the details pulled together. Exactly, Tom. And I'll openly admit that when I made the decision to do it, um, I knew there was no turning back. But I will say that I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. I didn't know how I was going to get the time off from JetBlue. I didn't know how I was going to equip 3-3 Golf with enough fuel to fly the long legs. But... It's like anything else in life. Once you make a decision to do something, you can figure it out. And that's, that's the key point in an event like this is making the decision to do something and making the sacrifices and uh, following through with it. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was a turning point for this. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hey, Adrian, thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, it's you a fascinating bet. tale. Congratulations. Yeah, was, thanks, Tom, and I'm glad we got to share the... Uh, the experience through Europe together because yeah. that was, uh, you know, it's a pretty solo, pretty lonely event out there and, and flying with somebody through Europe and, and being able to share the stories and about riding camels together and having dinners with our good friends in <laughs> Greece with George and, and Anton, Anton, Anton right. and, uh, and then of course meeting Ian and Ed Hicks in France. It was a it was a very very uh, memorable experience. It definitely definitely was. You bet. I appreciate the opportunity to go along, and thanks thanks so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. You bet, Tom. Thank you. All right, David. I don't know. Maybe stoke the fires again. I, who knows? A, a retirement goal, let's call it. One of these the days, yeah. yeah. Let's put our let's put our nickels together and we can do yeah. that. I like it. <laughs> it's cool. It's it's it, that's a great thing about aviation. That's like the sense of adventure. It's like you know you got this airplane in the hangar. Where are you going to go? New What's horizons. Next? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, super cool. I like it. Yeah. All right. So I think that's it for us this week. Uh, I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen, and I'm David Tulis. Find us at aopa.org/hangartalk. Or email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. And don't forget, we're now on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. Thanks, Dave. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian.